Today, I'm super excited to be chatting with Sam Richard, director of the growth team over at OpenView, which really helped create and define the category of product-led growth. Sam, thank you for being on. I'm pumped you're here. Appreciate your time. Awesome. I'm glad to be here and dealing on the product-led podcast. Absolutely. And so I know you've been on this podcast before on the other side, talking uh-huh. about some tactics. Mm-hmm. What were you, was it acquisition or activation? Product analytics, which is my, my favorite, but yeah. Mm-hmm. This will be a little bit of a break. We'll kind of geek out a little bit and talk about really your background and your journey into growth and how you've picked up some of these skills. And hopefully you'll be vulnerable and share a few of the mistakes along the way, because I feel like that's the really good stuff. It is. It is. Um, I've had quite the the interesting divergence in careers as well. So I'm excited to chat. Cool. Well, I'm excited to learn. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to do your intro here, Sam. Tell me what mm-hmm. I'm missing. So director of the growth team at OpenView, mm-hmm. previously director of engagement and growth at Dispatch. Mm-hmm. Before that, you worked in marketing at Catalan. From what I could tell on your LinkedIn, it looks like a lot of like technical marketing ops stuff, but we'll learn more. And then before that, V Interactive. Is that right? What am I missing? Yeah. Yeah. Prior, so V Interactive, prior to that, I was actually at Associates, which is a small consulting firm. It was my very first job. Like if you think about how to move your career, I think people put a lot of pressure on their first job. And then prior to that, I actually I worked all four years of college at the Department of Defense. So wow. I don't have that on my resume because I think it's weird, but it's a fun fact about me. Cool. Uh, well, I'm excited to learn about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I should probably add a mom and a fellow Medford resident as well. Yeah. Yeah. New to Medford, really loving it. Medford has changed quite a bit. My husband actually grew up there. So we're returning to his roots, but it's it's changed a lot in the past 30 years. So. My neighbors all call uh, my wife and I the new Medford as a term of endearment, but mm-hmm. they say that they moved into the neighborhood when they were around our age and they mm-hmm. like it. Uh, it seems cool for them to see the generations. Yeah, my friends either grandparents or young families, and I'm, I'm into that. So. Yeah, 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 us too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, cool. So I want to go back in time and hear about your journey into growth. But before we get there, for those who might not be familiar with OpenView, can you give the 10,000-foot overview as to what OpenView does and how your role fits in? Yeah. So OpenView at its core is a venture capital firm. We work with expansion stage startups, which a lot of people just tend to mean a series B, but I like to say, you know, we, we work with anyone who has product market fit and who's looking to sort of scale their go to market. I am not a venture capitalist. It's not my background, but I'm on our expansion team, which is really sort of very unique in the space in that we have so many folks who are working at the, the firm who are not necessarily out there finding companies to fund, but rather we really help companies who we have funded improve their go-to-market functionality. So if you think about, there are a lot of great tech businesses out there who have an amazing product, who have you know some amazing moats and things like that that they've really built over time who are gaining traction, but they have a really hard time scaling go-to-market. So I, I meet a ton of founders who are not necessarily sure where to even start with like customer segmentation and messaging, pricing, anything like that. Forget about it. It's not really their forte. But that's great because you know that's something that we can be experts on and help with. And it's, it's a really rewarding job. Super cool. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a million questions. I'm going to go back into mm-hmm. them because if not, I'm going to get distracted because OpenView does some cool stuff and the role you're doing there is really neat and all the trends and all that. We'll get into it. Can we go back and talk about the Department of Defense stuff? Like thinking sure. back and reflecting, <laughs> is, yeah. like, as you reflect on that, is that part of the skill set that has helped you to get to this point? I think you'd have to really go back to my undergraduate career 
I was always like a very math and science heavy person in high school. I, I really, you know, I felt that that was how I was going to get out of my small town in Indiana was to, you know, get into college. And in order to get into college, you had to be a girl who was really good at math and science. So in college, I, I was a political science major and I was really studying sort of like the voting trends in South Africa. I actually lived there for a year. And I was sort of looking at these crazy voting trends and this crazy sort of fraud that was happening, which is unfortunately very relevant today. And I was doing a lot of really interesting work in Stata and SPSS and like a few of those really old tools that are, you know, very analytical. And I learned a lot of that in my internships at the Department of Defense and the Pentagon. And I also sort of just like learned how to work in a way, just, you know, find something to do and make sure you do it well and put your name out there. So I would say that, you know, it's better that I didn't end up working in the Department of Defense and I'm not a lifer. I was graduating at a time when they were hiring freezes in the government. So that was why one of the reasons why I ended up going into the private sector. But I, I do feel like I learned quite a bit, um, especially in how to behave and how to present myself as well from working for the Department of Defense for four years. crazy. And so as part of that job, are you pulling data? Are you analyzing data? Because I know a lot of your journey has included mm -hmm. this, right? Analytics and, yeah. analytics and things. Is this the foundation of that skill set? No, I would argue that the foundation of the skill set that I've used in software has really come from my time at Dispatch, which is much more recent. I often found early on in my career that I was having a really hard time being the voice in the room. I was, you know, sort of being told what to do and, you know, executing on it well. But it, when it came to Dispatch, I really wanted to have a say in conversation. It was employee number five. I really wanted to have a say in what I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And I really mm. didn't want to be prescribed to. So I actually took the entire data program sort of in my hand and, you know, started trying to figure out, okay, how can we actually be strategic about using this data? How can we start making decisions on it? How can I convince people to make the decisions that I want them to make based on the evidence that I have? You know, and it took me a long time. I mean, it was 24 when I started working at Dispatch, but, you know, and it was not my first job by any means. I've been a job hopper. But, you know, that was really what changed the trajectory of my career. That's cool. And so yeah. how does that happen? Right. So you go to a company, you're the fifth employee. What was your mm -hmm. role? Like, what were you hired into? Obviously, you probably did a million things, but what was the actual? Yeah. My actual title when I signed my contract was director of marketing because prior to that, I had run all paid marketing and operations at what was Hourly Nerd at the time. And I really wasn't very happy with the culture at Hourly Nerd. And my CMO, who ended up being one of the, the bigger factors in my life, um, Dan Slagan, he actually worked at HubSpot. He's a, a well-known guy. I know. Well. It was an amazing <laughs> Yeah. Guy. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. Um, he's the best. He was just like, hey, I know these crazy guys founding this company and they're looking for their first marketer. Why don't you come in and talk to them? And I walked out 20 minutes later with an offer in hand and I was just like, this place is crazy. Like this place is completely nuts. But, you know, they treated me incredibly well. They treated me like a human being. It was just sort of a, a 180 culture wise from where I was at. And the numbers were right. And what they were doing was really interesting. And I just, I thought it would be sort of like another two year deal. And I ended up staying there for four years. And it's, it's really changed the entire trajectory of my life. So I, I think that there's a lot of luck in decision-making. And I would say that that is one of the, the biggest parts of my life where I've gotten lucky was taking that job at Dispatch. That's cool. And I bet it wasn't as much luck as you might claim that it is. I feel like you're being a little bit humble here. I mean, it was Dan Slagan really talking me up. So I'd worked with Dan for a few months during his tenure at Hourly Nerd. And I guess he was impressed by me. I mean, he gave me my first marketing job. I was always sort of an analyst in an analyst function. And he was just like, 
she went to Wellesley. She knows how to do Excel work. Why don't I just hire her for this? And she'll figure the rest out. And, you know, I try and keep that in mind all the time. It's like people don't necessarily have to have the skill set. They have to have, you know, the ability to learn and to, to be hungry. Totally. Yeah. Big lesson from Dan. And so Dan gives you, or you get into your first marketing job working for Dan mm-hmm. at Hourly Nerd. And then mm-hmm. this is the same place where you end up running demand gen and a lot of the marketing ops stuff. Like how did you go from zero to that? Because that's... That's not yeah. simple stuff, you know? Yeah, there were three of us on the team. Dan always liked to to talk about like setting up your team in terms of like left brain, right brain. I'm much more of the analytical type. Um, my counterpart, Todd, who I actually took with me to dispatch, was much more of like the content guy. He was really good at figuring out design, etc. And Dan, unfortunately, moved on very quickly. And the hourly nerd founders sort of just appointed one of the founders to be my manager at the time. And he was just like well, we have these numbers to hit and we have this spend that we need to have. Why don't you run some experiments? So I was going out there. I mean, HubSpot at the time was just dominating in terms of marketing content. Dan connected me with a few mentors in this space, Allison Ellsworthy, who's still at HubSpot, and a few other folks who really were helpful in sort of defining the way that I think about things in terms of frameworks. And I mean, the guys in Nerd were... (laughs) pretty tough too. I mean, they had really high expectations. They'd come from HBS. You could not make any sort of errors in an Excel form or anything like that. So it was tough going from being sort of like this early marketer to reporting directly to a CEO or to a founder. So I was working a lot of like 80 hour weeks just to like figure out what I was doing, but I just, I don't like to fail. So uh, that's definitely one of my fears. And I think that, you know, they saw that too. So they were willing to let me take things on because they saw that it would be sort of like gut-wrenching for me to fail. I feel like it's a really common thing when you chat with growth folks. Mm -hmm. They are happy to fail as long as like they're learning and getting better. So like the fear of failure is actually a motivator and something that's a competitive advantage. Uh, It was just Mm -hmm. chatting with uh, Sunit as another guest on the podcast. And he said something similar. He said... He said, I, I've got no problem being wrong. I just want to find the right answer. And I don't care how many tries it's going to take me. So he actually was telling me that he got addicted to sort of this process of just figuring stuff out and using the nose as like an indicator that he's about to get to a, a right answer. So it sounds yeah. like you took a similar perspective, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And in terms of failure too, I, I'd rather sort of fail privately and fail in a smaller way. And I think that's why experimentation is so important than like fail when you're, you're pressing that big sweaty monkey hand on MailChimp and you forgot a link or something like that, which has totally happened to me in my career. I've sent out a ridiculous number of emails with like a missing link or something like that, or sort of missing attributes. But believe me, I do not do that anymore. <laughs> so those are the, the types of things that really motivated me. And I felt the guys at Hourly Nerd were very tough on me on those sorts of things. And I appreciate that more now that I'm looking back at it than I did. Uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. really interesting. And so you mentioned that you kind of looked at Dan as a mentor uh, and mm-hmm. also Allison over at HubSpot. What mm-hmm. were the kinds of things? Well, one, how did you know? Well, Dan obviously was a mentor because he was your manager, but how did you know it was worth connecting with someone like Allison and what types of things did you talk about with her? Frankly, I didn't. Dan connected me with her as well as a few other sort of like the OG members of the HubSpot Mafia who are actually like still there. I think he saw that I was hungry and he he was dealing with like a lot of different things going on at Hourly Nerd, some good, some bad. Mm-hmm. And 
he wanted to ensure that I had some sort of mentorship and that I was sort of had this career trajectory in Boston. I, I think that's one of the best aspects of him as a manager. And one of the things that I always keep in mind when I'm managing people too, is like, how do I help build their professional network so they're not completely reliant on me? And I didn't know at the time that Allison and everyone else was such an important conversation. And I wish I could go back and ask smarter questions. Mm. Um, like now that I remember those conversations, it was just like, wow, they, they gave me so much time that they really shouldn't have, you know, especially like being who they were and like, you know, HubSpot was going public at the time and things like that. You know, so I try and keep that in mind too. And people reach out to me for conversations is like, you have to be generous with your time and answer people's not so bright questions when they may not have any sort of grasp on the situation so yeah maybe i should reach back out and have a better conversation with them now but it's such a good takeaway right and for anyone right. listening who's thinking about reaching out to someone to mm-hmm. pick their brain or to ask for help the more research and the more specific you can be well a the more you get back in return but b the more likely right. the person's going to feel good about you know giving you their time mm-hmm. exactly yeah and so cool so you worked at hourly nerd Mm-hmm. Uh, it was time to go. Dan hooked you up, pushed you out of the nest, went over to dispatch. <laughs> so employee number five, leading the marketing uh-huh. team. Then what happens? Because you had a cool run there. Yeah. So I led the marketing team and Avi, who's the CEO, I'm still very close with. His idea of marketing was very different from mine. I've always been sort of the, the analytical marketer trying to figure out, you know, how do we connect point A to point B to point C to revenue? And, you know, I could tell really early on, I was just not a great fit there. He wanted someone who was going to get them press. He wanted someone who was going to write really pithy blog posts and things like that. And that really just wasn't me or my particular skill set at the time. My second day at Dispatch, they flew me to... San Francisco and had me go to a conference to like get leads and like pitch the company. And I was just not a very outgoing person. I was not going to like walk up to someone and start pitching dispatch. Were you like uh, at a booth or did they put you in a panel or something? Or? Um, it was an on-demand conference. So that was like sort of the hot on-demand. Like there were so many on-demand startups. And at the time, dispatch was Uber for X in a box. Like that was our pitch. And we were just like the APIs powering on-demand experiences. And that was just not me. So they were just having me walk around and like cold approach people and they were like texting me constantly like have you talked to anyone <laughs> oh no so i was just like i have to reset some expectations here like how can i be valuable to this company in another way yeah. so you know first that started we were raising a series a i was doing a lot of work for Adi, just sort of like packaging up the materials making sure that the story was uh, aligned with the analytics and the, the actual data coming from the platform is this for the actual pitch deck yeah yeah pretty cool yeah, I was actually doing some of that at Arlene Nerd too. Just like trying to ensure that the pitch deck had, you know, the right marketing metrics and the right customer acquisition metrics and things like that and raising our B. So I didn't really know I'd end up working in VC, but I was rubbing elbows with a lot of VCs at the time. Well, I'm getting a lot of reps in at using data to solve problems and make stories, right? Like Exactly. Yeah, that's stuff. true. Yeah. So I started tackling a little bit more of the data stuff. And then we actually signed like our top two biggest customers that same month that I was at Dispatch. And we were like, great, we have these enterprise customers. Ultimately, we sold them to the enterprise. So it's very easy for the founding team to do that. But they're supposed to be bringing on tens of thousands of service providers in the coming months. And we have no idea how to do that. So that meant me getting on a plane and training rooms and rooms full of service providers how to like use their phone and how to start using our application. And what was really interesting about Dispatch was our pricing metric was really tied to the number of jobs that were sent through our API. So ultimately, 
companies like Sears or companies like American Home Shield would send jobs to service providers who they had no relationship with via our API. And those service providers, in order to get paid, were expected to, to perform those jobs. And the APIs that we managed provided a great customer experience. We were tied in with Twilio. We did surveys, those things. So I was teaching service providers how to use an app on their phone, which... I don't know if you guys have ever worked with like a plumber or anything like that, but that's not necessarily their forte. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So I was doing this individually, like guy by guy, trying to figure out how to scale this pitch. And everything really stemmed from there. So I was thinking like, how can I create sort of enablement materials that, you know, capture this voice? Like, how do I do this with video? How do I actually start doing this at scale? Because mm-hmm. you know, this is a thousand service providers. How do we do this with 10,000 service providers? And how do I like make sure that I see my husband again? Because I'm on a plane for like six months straight. And, and how many people <laughs> at the company at this point, like how far into the journey are we here? Oh, I think we were like 10 plus like a bunch of engineers in the Ukraine. Cool. Okay. So the company's grown, like it's a double, but it's still a relatively small team. But you're at that really cool inflection point that a lot of companies get. Yeah, we were all so young. Like our CTO was 25. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we were just sort of like gunning each other on and just like the daringness and like, how can you show how committed you are to this business? And like Slack was always on fire and things like that. And we were always having outages. And like me and the support guy, like things were going directly to our cell phones. It was rough. Yeah. So... I was taking lessons that were learned the hard way and trying to figure out how do I make it scalable with like no budget whatsoever. Yeah. But I was lucky in that, you know, we had this constant flow of businesses who wanted to force their service providers and their network to use our application. So different from a lot of acquisition structures, but getting a service provider to use his phone to do his job is a very challenging ask as well, especially if you're not showing any value. So I really tried to shift the story of like how it was valuable for them. And then I started to design things around that. So the basic things that are not necessarily product-led, like sales enablement materials, collateral, videos, things like that. But also I started taking a, a deeper role in the product itself. So figuring out you know, what are the cues and things like that that we can put in that get someone excited about using Dispatch once they're in it. But also taking a little bit more of a step back and managing product project strategy as well. So, did you have any formal experience doing that? I feel no. like <laughs> thing is like you've got a marketer, and at yeah. some time they just cross over and start getting mm-hmm. to do product stuff. Like, what was yeah. that like? Was that challenging? It was challenging on a personal level. And I think this goes back to the data as well. People were just like, who's this uppity girl? She does not know anything about coding. You know, she just has opinions. She has strong opinions. She talks to like service providers all day. She's, she doesn't know what like MongoDB is or you yeah. know anything like that. So it was tough from a personal level. I took a lot of shots. But, you know, I, I think when you're really dedicated to your company and you really take an entrepreneurial mindset and you start to really own things, then you, you garner respect. It took me a long time. But you, you really garner respect, like starting with inline engineers, things like that. And... I also was trying to find ways to to get around those sorts of things too. So this is sort of, I actually ended up being like a beta user of Pendo. Um, I found them. I found uh, Gainsight and a few other, Natero, uh, a few other tools out there. I, I got to start using those things early because I was looking for ways to get around my product and engineering organization because we hated each other. <laughs> um, so it was interesting. And you know, you start to see sort of product-led growth enablement happening at a really early phase. And I think mm-hmm. it was a really 
good time to be in the SaaS space. But, and then I also took a step back and started to get on planes again and start to manage integration relationships. So we found that like the larger tools out there or service providers were already using, like Jobber, who you mm-hmm. said you talked to. You know, how could we get them to be on our team and to not see us as a threat? Because uh, ultimately, we sold them to the enterprise and they sold them to SMBs. So trying to change up that message and start to build out those relationships because ultimately, we just wanted as much data possible flowing through our systems. And, you know, we had to, to really convince other folks of that as well. So, and then I was like actually specking out integration specs and, and those kinds of things, which end up being really productive too. And so how did you learn how to do that? This is the most common thing that I hear when I talk to more junior growth folks who are trying to get mm-hmm. into growth is they might be talented marketers, but they have no mm-hmm. idea how to cross over into the realm of products. And so you've, you've done it. I'm curious to know how it went. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there are a lot of different kinds of product folks and I'm still trying to figure out who's better. <laughs> you know, I think people really get irritated by people saying that product managers are like mini CEOs because they're managing like the P&L of a product. I find that there are more technical PMs who are, I should be more respectful of them, but I call them like one of the engineers because they're just like, they come to things with a solution. They come to problems with a solution pre-baked and mm-hmm. they don't come to it asking a little bit more about the problem. And then there are PMs who are more like user advocates who are really great. And they typically come from like support backgrounds or things like that. And they're really great at connecting with the user. And then there are product folks who come like with the snarky business background, which is me, which is just like, how do we do the least amount of effort for the the greatest ROI? Mm -hmm. How did I learn to do that? I'm aggressive when I care about something. I used to cry in the bathroom when dispatch would have a bad day. I loved that company. And Andy Bernard says, don't you wish you knew you were in the good times when you were in the good times? But I met some of my best friends there. I met some of the brightest people I've ever met there. And we were all just really working together and we all cared about that company so much and wanted to make it work. And that was the driving force behind me. It wasn't like, oh, this is going to be great for my career if I transition into product. It was just like, no, my users need XYZ so that we can make $10,000 more this month. Let's do this. And this is the fastest way to do it is to go through product. I mean, frankly, if like... If I had known that it would make us an extra million dollars in ARR, I would have learned to code. You know what I mean? If I could figure out how to be that integral part of that company. And I think that goes back to like that growth mindset, that entrepreneurial mindset. But some weaknesses there was I needed to win a little bit more buy-in and make some more friends. So, you know, don't necessarily... That's where I messed up. (laughs) If you're thinking about it, to not be a bull in a china shop with people's feelings. Are there any stories that come to mind? I feel like this is a super common thing. And if I'm poking the bear and you sensitive of a thing, feel free. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've left now. It's behind me. I mean, I never got in any like yelling matches with anyone. But there was a 360 evaluation done of me where I, I still have it like taped up in my office here. That's just like, she always wants to get right down to business. She never asks me how I'm doing or things like that. And then, you know, occasionally I would be working with an integration partner or any someone like that where I would have to go in and tell a product manager like we were killing his idea because it was too competitive with the the partner that we had in mind and we couldn't do it or something like that. I mean, I spent my mom still yells at me. I spent our Christmas day launching like a new button in the application and like managing that campaign because I dearly wanted that to go out for a customer. And the product manager was like, I'm not going to do it because we don't have any of the support. And I was like, 
no, I'll do it for you. So <laughs> those are some of the stories of just like me being way too aggressive, but I've learned from them. So, That's cool. And I think motherhood has tamed me a little bit as well. You still have the 360, like you really still have it? Oh, I read it all the time. It's so mean. People were so mean. People really did not like me. I have a bad 360 yeah. uh, <laughs> that I've kept as well. Really? Uh, yeah, I find it motivated. I mean, you got to find your things, right? Especially as you progress and you encounter different challenges. If you're going to work in the same space, the challenges change slightly. And so mm-hmm. finding things to keep yourself motivated and to like push yourself when no one else may be pushing you is, is really important, at least to me anyways. Well, and I think you have some pretty deep experience working in startups too. It's so rare that you get feedback that's actually good. I'm lucky to work at OpenView where we have like a very serious feedback process, but at Dispatch, I never received critical feedback. It was just like, things were either great and, you know, there was always this expectation that things would be better and the bar ended up getting very high for me by the end, which was quite annoying. Or, you know, things were really bad and I knew about it, but we were sort of a team, so it would be okay. But, you know, I think in startups too, you end up finding like the people who came in early sort of get extra privileges because they've been through the battles together, which is really unfair too. So it's, it's a lens that you have to look through and make sure that you don't like get this crazy ego within an organization. I mean, that was ultimately one of the reasons why I left dispatch was just like, how do I know I'm good? You know, if I'm not getting a lot of critical feedback, I want to go somewhere where I can be bad mm. or at least be told that I'm being bad. And that is the driving force to open you. I was going to ask how this, <laughs> how this transition happens or when, but it was not the driving force, but yeah, it was, I mean, there were a lot of driving forces. A lot of it was that 360 review and just like, being tired of fighting. I was seven months pregnant. You know how tired that can feel when I decided to leave. Dispatch also got acquired by Vista Private Equity, which was amazing. It was a, like a life-changing event for me. Um, it's like really great to see a nice exit from a company. But you know that changed things a lot. All my friends left. I was like the last OG person there outside of the founding team. And then, you know, the vision for the product really started to change as a result of that too. I always sort of had this like massive vision for what that product could be. And, you know, maybe me and my friends from Dispatch will go build it someday, but it's not going to happen with that, that company as it is today. So there are a number of reasons to leave. I also just, you know, you don't really say no to OpenView. It's sort of like the godfather request. So yeah, yeah you don't say no to Liz Kane. <laughs> <laughs> And so tell me and tell people that are listening to this, yeah. like, what's the vibe at OpenView? Like, what is it like as a place to work and as a group of people to be around? Uh, and then we can talk about the job and what it's like doing that. Yeah. So I found out I was not looking for another job. I was not looking to leave. I was seven months pregnant. And Sean Fanning, who worked with me at Dispatch and really helped sort of tee up the opportunity with the private equity, had moved on to OpenView to run Corp Dev. And he's still there and he's amazing and I love him very much. And he just reached out to me and was like, hey, how are things? I have the perfect job for you. And I had been thinking, you know, what am I going to do when I leave Dispatch? I wear so many hats. I have so much ownership. And part of you is like, just honestly doesn't want to give any of that up. But also part of you is tired from working 90 hours a week. So it's just like, maybe I have to give some of it up. And switching jobs is, it's such a major move, right? It's such a a a part of your identity. Like it really often is. It's a huge part of my identity. Yeah, it's what makes it really tough. So Mm -hmm. I understand what a big and tough decision that must have been. Yeah, I cried probably. I, I would wake up in the middle of the night all through May of 2019 and just cry all the time. I was so oh, worried no. I was going to like ruin my baby. You know, it turns out everything was fine. Dispatch is still around. They're not burning down. They could live without me. So I went to OpenView and 
I was very intimidated at first. I think anyone who's been on the other side of the table, especially not necessarily the best side of the table, is afraid of venture capital. They tend to be a really intimidating crowd. A lot of people have gone to fancy schools. I was working with Greylock as part of uh, Hourly Nerd, and they were scary. Just um, <laughs> the least. Maybe don't publish that part. You <laughs> um, <laughs> don't have to get uh, into the stories there. <laughs> but um, OpenView is different. I mean, I, what struck me the most is first of all, like partners are just so accessible. Like Liz Kane is a partner, and she like made me my offer sitting on the OpenView roof deck. And it's just like a really amazing and cool person and just incredibly accessible. None of them have like the wall of fancy degrees and like all of those things. I, I, I like sort of how gritty all of the partners are and they're like willing to, to roll up their sleeves and start working in diligence and talk with you about certain SaaS metrics or things that are on your mind um, about like a particular leader at a business or something like that. It feels like very democratic. I will say OpenView has just a very high standard for talent. And I'm so amazed that I got the job there. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> just like sitting in interviews, I'm shocked that someone offered me this job. But I, every day that I work there, I'm just like really grateful that I'm rubbing elbows with these people because I, I do think that the people you surround yourself with make you better. And there's just an immense amount of polish and just people really have a growth mentality there. And, you know, we're, we're constantly investing in sort of learning and development. We actually just hired a new learning and development person. And we're just invested in making sure that our colleagues are successful. So, I mean, Kyle was ultimately the reason that I joined OpenView, but I didn't necessarily know how delightful working with him would be. He's just like literally one of the best managers I've ever had. And he's my only manager that doesn't have an MBA. So <laughs> that's a really funny correlation, I think, outside of Dan Slagan, of course. But, you know, he really goes to bat for you. He really advocates you and he, for you and he teaches you so much. So, you know, and that's a standard that he's not like an exceptional person, which is really interesting too. I don't think we are he's an exceptional person, but that just seems to be the bar and where it's at. And I like being held to those high standards. That's awesome. And so you started to talk about at the beginning. So in your role, you work directly with some of their portfolio companies. Are those mm -hmm. founders? Are those marketers? Or does it depend on where the company's at? It really depends. Um, it really depends on where the company's at and the relationship that I have. Um, it's hard to explain to people because it really happens organically. I mean, I came in to OpenView. I had a meeting with the, the two founders of a development tool who are really having problems. And I'm sort of like the point person for that particular portfolio company now. But I've talked to everyone from like CSMs there all the way up to the founder. And the relationship with OpenView, and I think why we're such a unique firm, is that we encourage that sort of behavior. We encourage people to use us as a resource. So I get cold outreach on LinkedIn all the time from people at portfolio companies like wanting to talk to OpenView, wanting to, to talk about product-led growth. But one of the, the things that we do as OpenView is we actually do work on like special prescriptive projects with portfolio companies. And in that case, I usually am working with an executive, so like a VP, maybe a director level person, really working on problems that are, are visible at a board level. So it could be like a metric is off. Maybe they're having a, a churn problem. Maybe they're having like an activation problem. And then it's sort of like setting me loose on the organization to leverage everything I can find to start like taking advantage of that. So... You know, I've gone anywhere from like getting keys to a certain company's data warehouse and like pulling all of their user data to like figure out what are the, what's correlating to activation all the way to, you know, interviewing experts on product-led growth and how they manage their sales functions to really provide like a, a bunch of best practices to companies that are just starting out. And it's not just portfolio companies that I work with as well. I often work with founders um, at Prospects as well. 
Cool. And so what are some of your favorite types of problems to work on? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I really like broad problems, not necessarily like Kyle's a pricing expert. And I think it can be really clear when your pricing is off. But I like more broad problems where I actually just completed work with a security company that's in the portfolio who is sort of releasing their very first self-serve motion. I've been thinking a lot about this because we have a lot of security companies in the portfolio. And there are very few companies in the security space who have a self-serve motion. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, why is that a problem? Like, why are security folks not wanting to do it? Is that something I could change with messaging? Is that something we could change with product? Is that something we could change if we had sort of a, a buyer segmentation that was better, if we started like looking more at DevOps engineers who also had a security hat on as part of their role. That ended up being a really massive project and something I think about for a long time, but it's almost more like a thesis and it's something that I would like to tackle at length. And it's it's challenging to break that into like an eight-week project, but things for me at OpenView end up usually being a quarter-long theme because I, you know, I, I notice one problem and I'm like, oh, I should reach out to that security leader at you know, another company, or I should reach out to a DevOps leader that I know and start really asking them. So, you know, I'll finish a project and then I'll publish an article and then I will reach out to another company and then I'll work with a prospect. And I like that it becomes thematic like that because it, it keeps you focused and it makes you stronger. And do you notice the same trends or themes across these businesses? I feel like that's, that's the gift of getting a lot of inputs is that you notice commonalities. Yeah. I think someday I will be really good at developer marketing or working in particular with like Israeli security companies because uh, I've noticed a lot of trends and like a lot of quick wins and I'm jumping into those conversations with folks. You know, it's interesting and I don't like want to get into it too deep, but um, I think that people who are especially strong at product they really, really talk about their product like it's their baby, and then you go to their website and you have no clue what mm. they're talking about. It's like full of jargon. There's like no what's in it for me. It's just like there's so many easy fixes, but then sometimes everything gets so turned around that you kind of just want to throw it all away and start over again and say like, what do you like? I don't care what your product does. I just want to. I want to talk to your customers. I don't want to talk to you. And you want to sort of like build this wall between them because you you want to hear directly from their customers what's the value that they're seeing because they're so far from it because they're so excited about features and things like that. That's so interesting, uh, and I've yeah. seen it too. Right where you get right, yeah, especially for really technical products. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. and a technical founder, and really the importance of that narrative is key. It's key to the whole thing and how it all wraps up and relates to the story and the job to be done and the value that's delivered. It's the whole thing. It all has to be that. Well, and it's funny because it it sort of comes back to haunt me, but we were just like so cool in our early days at Dispatch that we really never felt like we needed classical marketing. I remember I picked up positioning as like our book club book and no one came to that book club (laughs) because everyone thought positioning would be really like mad money and that we didn't need it. But, you know, I would say like one of the failures that I had at Dispatch is we never really did that project and we never really thought of like when you asked an engineer at Dispatch what we sold and like what the value it provided was, they would have no idea. And I think that that's a serious problem in an organization. Totally. Yeah. And I guess that's marketing. It's marketing and it's, Mm -hmm. I think, well, my personal take on this is that that's something that the founders really need to be involved in is just understanding where your company fits into the overall world of your ideal target customer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I've got a couple more questions for you. I'm going to be mindful of your time here. I don't want to go too, too long. I've got three more questions. So in your opinion, 
What do you think are the most important skills for someone to be successful working in growth? I'd say it's an entrepreneurial mindset. I've always been sort of an entrepreneur. I I was 12 years old and I wanted to start horseback riding lessons. And my mom said, well, if you can figure out a way to pay for it, you should, you can do it. And, you know, it's always been like that. It's always been a little wild and crazy and just like me taking on things in that way. And I th- I don't think you're going to be successful in growth unless you treat that business like it's your business mm. um, and you're a cheapskate and you're always wanting to to understand how it's contributing to the bottom line. And, you know, you think about it like you're running a little bodega in a way while also keeping your eye on like the 10,000 foot view. You know, I think that's really key. And it's so hard for me to beat into people when I'm sort of like managing them too. And it's hard too, because you want to give someone sort of like the opportunity to have work-life balance and things like that. But to me, I attribute all of my success in my career to the passion for the places that I've worked and at least their vision. And the second I'm not feeling aligned with the company's vision or a firm's vision or something like that is really when I start feeling the need to leave because I'm not performing at my best. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And what are the common traps that you see? So you get to talk to all yeah. these founders and growth folks and you know, you're producing content yourself. What are some of the things that you see that just make you want to slap your forehead? I think one of them is people getting really caught up in tooling. I think we've sort of reached peak SaaS. You know, I, we probably haven't reached peak SaaS and, you know, slap me for saying that because I work for a venture capital company that invests <laughs> in SaaS. But we've just sort of reached a really cool phase of, the, of technology, especially in our chosen vocation where there's a tool for everything. Uh, you can over-tool yourself. Your stacks can get wild. And I've noticed people almost taking a tool and wanting to apply... like almost looking for problems to apply it to rather than thinking about their problems for a long time. Like when I have a problem at an organization, I like to tackle it first and try and figure out, A, how can it be solved with what I have? B, is it it a problem in the first place? And then finally C is like going out and trying to, to really find something to solve it with. But when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. So I try not to pick up too many hammers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's spot on. Mm -hmm. And We've talked a lot about different skills and backgrounds and things. I'm curious to know if there's any skills that you're working on now. For my career or personal or? Well, I left it open-ended. I was thinking in terms of related to growth, but a lot of times there's overlap, right? Like the the balance there is very fine. Yeah, I'm trying to sort of give myself better polish and to become a better communicator. One of the reasons I took the OpenView job, among many things, was just because I, you know, OpenView has this sort of brand that is incredibly polished. And I'm basically given only so much amount of time to really make clear my intentions and my recommendations with a founder or a team or things like that. So I'm really trying to figure out, you know, how can I make the biggest impact possible when I communicate? My husband also says I need to work on my communication. So that <laughs> there's that as well. But I'm, I'm doing things like reading Tufty, thinking about, you know, how do I better visualize data so that it's more informative and engages the audience better. I think that's, you know, one of the big pitfalls of our careers too. But, you know, and then really trying to take a look at what I think is the best content out there, like stealing content. One of my, my bosses uh, is formerly of McKinsey, so I'm always stealing his decks. Just trying to get my hands on anything that I, I believe is a good presentation. I watch a lot of um, investor calls uh, when people are actually you know, talking about you know, how their company is performing to the public markets, just to try and get a vibe for you know, how can I do better and how can I communicate more effectively to broader audiences. How do you know if you're making progress on this? It's a good question. I'm pretty lucky in that I get to go back to companies and see if they've implemented anything that I actually recommended. 
it's always like nice when people do that. But I also, I think that a lot of people make fun of folks who are being on LinkedIn, but I like to see, you know, are the pieces that I'm writing are the things that I'm doing when I'm going on these like quarter long deep dives on things that are exciting to me, are those resonating with people? And if they're not, why are people reading it and thinking it's called garbled? So I'll reach out to like experts in special spaces where I'm doing research. Um, I'll reach out to practitioners. I'll reach out to like friends and say like, does this even resonate with you? Do you care about this at all? You know, I'm constantly looking for feedback. One of the things that I do with prospects and with portfolio companies is I ask them, you know, where did I fail? Like what surprised you? What are you not happy with? One of my former colleagues at Dispatch used to always ask how he could improve after every single conversation. And I mm. loved that. People don't tend to offer much advice when you ask them that, but you know, one out of 10 is awesome. So then you're going to get 10% better. Yeah, that's awesome. That's something that everybody should be doing way more often. <laughs> Sometimes you don't want the answer. I mean, right, like, stuff, but <laughs> most of us don't ask for feedback proactively. Then we get no. it and we brace for impact. And it's way better if you get it when it's actionable and you can make quick changes. That's how we get better in life. That's good stuff. Yeah. All right, Sam, last question. I'm about to become a dad. What advice do you have for me as I enter this new journey? I would say give yourself grace. There's a lot out there. Every kid is different. You're probably going to like really mess up or you're going to have a really bad day. Um, But just give yourself some grace. You don't always have to like be happy about it. Like parenting is the, is a marathon and, you know, just give yourself some breathing room and, you know, be gentle and kind on yourself. Cause you know, if you're happy, then the kid's happy. And I think that's what matters the most. That is all that matters. Yeah. Do you know if it's a boy or a girl? Yeah. We're having a little baby boy. Oh, that's so great. That's awesome. Very soon. Probably by the time this gets released, I will be (laughs) Sam. Thank you so much for coming on, lending your time and your thoughts. This was fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it.